You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. And uh, in the Victorian budget last week, uh, $32 million was allocated to expand the drug court to the Melbourne Magistrates Court. And currently the drug court runs only in Dandenong and has had impressive results with serious drug-related offences, which often lack effective sentencing options in other courts. To talk about the drug court and how it works, lawyer Alyssa Scott from Victoria Legal Aid joins us by phone. She's working out at the Dandenong Drug Court and it's really great to have you with us. Alyssa, and I, I suppose it's worth starting with, what is a drug court? What, what's it there to do? Sure. Well, there is only one drug court in our state of Victoria, and that's based at Dandenong, as you've already indicated. And that has a catchment area of people who live within the greater Dandenong area, so not just in the suburb of Dandenong, but they can be in some of the surrounding suburbs as well. And it's a court that assists about 60 participants, 60 to 70 participants, and essentially it is a different sentencing option for magistrates. So it may be if somebody's looking at a term of imprisonment that they can then go and access our Dandenong Drug Court, and it's a two-year order that somebody must be on, and it actually has a drug, a, a jail component attached to it. So what would happen is that a potential participant would be assessed, they go through a screening process and then quite a rigorous assessment before they're placed on that order. And then they're managed on that order for two years and they go through a number of different phases whilst they're on that order. There's a stabilisation phase, that's phase number one. The consolidation phase and that's phase number two. And then there's a reintegration phase. And the great thing about the drug court is that you actually have access to a multidisciplinary team. So you have access to counsellors and other support workers. You have access to a legal aid lawyer. And you also have access to things like urine analysis and um, assistance with uh, accommodation and the likes. So it's a fantastic supportive program, but it's also really intensive. But the aim is to really ensure that we try and help somebody address a number of the underlying problems that have really gone to make up why they're offending. And I suppose before we go into to the effectiveness of it, and I understand it's been very effective, mm. how, how is this different to the options available to other courts? So essentially, if you are going through a magistrate's court, you don't have access to a drug court. They're only, it's only based at Dandenong. So there's nothing else like it in the state. And this is a very intensive, rehabilitative-focused program. And so, so at the moment... It's only Dandenong that's that's available, so only people that would be um, would access the Dandenong Court. It's geographically located, so expanding it to Melbourne Magistrates Court. What, what is the the kind of new catchment, I suppose, for the numbers of people that can can go to a drug court? Sure. So at the moment, as I've indicated, the Dandenong Court can service between sixty and seventy participants in the drug court. What will happen now that the state government has put money into further expanding the program is that there'll be now a drug court based at the Melbourne Magistrates Court and that court will then be able to actually facilitate a program for up to 170 participants. So it's almost two and a half times the size of the Dandenong Drug Court. And some of the catchment areas for that will be including out to Footscray and um, up to Northcote and then down to St Kilda and Brunswick and Coburg. So that'll have quite a wide catchment area as well. So it's fantastic that we now can have people who are suffering from quite significant drug addiction as a, 
and as a result of offending, access a different program that can really focus on rehabilitation and moving them away from that type of behaviour. And, uh, I mean, jailing people for essentially mm-hmm. having a drug habit is mm-hmm. the option that is open to most courts at the moment mm-hmm. if they've mm-hmm. offended while, while, um, while using drugs. But I, I understand the cost saving is quite significant. So to go through the drug court costs about $26,000 to go through that two-year program versus $197,000 to take the imprisonment route. So That's right. So if we look at over a two-year program, as you've indicated, it's $26,000 saving. If, well, $26,000 if you're a drug court participant. That's the cost associated with it. And it's $197,000 if you were going to imprison somebody for a period of two years. So if we look at not just the cost savings there, but if we look at how we are reducing somebody's chances of re offending it's actually quite remarkable. So we know that... Um, Certainly, there's 31% lower chance of somebody reoffending within the first 12 months um, of being released, but also that increases the longer that you're off the order. So it's a 34% lower rate of reoffending if you've gone through the drug court after a two-year period. Not only that, we know that there's also a reduction in the average seriousness of the offences that are being committed um, by people who come off the drug court. So not only are they reducing their chances of reoffending, but if they do reoffend, then it's far less serious types of offending that they come before the court for. So certainly very, very advantageous in regards to really supporting the community um, in the sense of moving people away from this type of lifestyle. And I understand that Victoria Legal Aid, you're the main lawyer that works in the drug court. So from, from your point of view where you are, Alyssa, uh, what, what's it like? like what, what's the experience like going through the drug court compared to other courts? Mm-hmm. I should indicate I'm not actually the drug court lawyer. We have a senior drug court lawyer who's based at Danny Nong. My role in the past has been to manage that program um, or manage our legal aid's involvement in that program. And I now sit in a role in Melbourne, which is our summary crime program. So we also I oversee the drug court initiatives um, via legal aid. But my experience, I've appeared for clients previously within the Danny Nong drug court. And my experience has been that um, the client's very much engaged with the process. It is really onerous. You need to be engaged um, on a number of times per week with the system. And so it's important that we have, you know, certainly a legal aid lawyer there to assist them as they go through that process as well. It's not often we have good news stories when it comes to drugs and crime, I think, Alyssa. And I I wonder, um, you know, it's it's taken a few years to get these kind of stats together about how effective the drug Mm -hmm. court's been. And we're seeing now the Victorian Government Attorney-General come out and say this is an effective way to to deal with these kinds of crimes and these kinds of offenders. Uh, How important is that data, I suppose? You know, is is that what's got the extra funding and the expansion? I think the data has been crucial. I mean, I think we know that there was the evaluation done at the end of 2014 of the drug court, but I think there's probably been a combination of factors that have really helped with this expansion. Uh, as you're probably aware, there's an access to justice review that's currently underway, and Legal Aid have written a very substantial report to the access to justice review that really focuses on how we can improve people's access to justice. And one of the ways that we've indicated that we should be doing that is actually ensuring that additional funding goes into these types of rehabilitative programs. It's about restorative justice and we can see that the benefits are far-reaching. So I think that there's been a combination of factors and I think it's fantastic that the state government have recognised that and have really 
understand the benefits of it. We know that other therapeutic courts, for example, the Neighbourhood Justice Centre, are also producing similar results in the fact that they're very cost-effective and they're reducing the risk of recidivism. And it's interesting, isn't it, because I, I think at the state level all across Australia we often hear a hard-on-crime um, yes. sort of rhetoric coming, particularly leading up to elections. And mm, I mm. wonder, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily call this lenient on crime but it's certainly not what you'd call hard on crime and I wonder it sounds like we're also safer with this kind of more considered more more community oriented approach do you think this might lead to kind of reduced numbers of people in prison over time rather than the kind of increases that we're seeing well, I think certainly reducing the numbers of people in, people in prison is a, a good way to go. Now, clearly we need prisons because they are safety mechanisms and they support the commu- and um, keep the community safe on a number of levels. But what we also know is that our prisons are overcrowded and that we need to be really looking at other ways of effectively reducing how many people are going to prisons. And these types of restorative justice processes are, in fact, really assisting when we look at um, the stats that are coming out from reducing, you know, in terms of reducing recidivism and making sure that our crime rates are dropping because we're actually looking at the root causes of what's actually causing the offending and unless we look at the root causes of what causes people to go out and offend then we're going to continue to see people be put into prisons. So these are I think really creative ways of doing it. They're onerous as well and certainly they're not an easy option. They're very very significant and they're quite hard to complete but we do know that when we're putting resources into assisting people addressing some of the reasons why they're offending that the benefits are fantastic. And I I noticed in the Victorian budget that this initiative, the $32 million for the Melbourne Magistrate Court expansion of of the drug court was put under the sort of under the, the the term ice like trying to address mm. um the the issues towards the um the ice um a scourge that we have in victoria is it mainly ice that's leading people to be in front of the drug court or is there a range of different drugs involved with with offenders Look, my experience has been that there's a range of different drugs. I mean, certainly we know that there has been significant impact of the drug ice on our community, and as you're probably aware, Legal Aid have um, written a, a submission for the task force into ice use. And we know that we really need to be addressing ice more from a health point of view than from a legal point of view. But certainly in terms of the drug court, yes, there are, there are ice offenders who are on there, but there's also people who are using heroin and cannabis and even alcohol. So it addresses a whole range of substances. Very interesting and so, like I said we don't often get um, positive news story coming out of our, our courts and, uh, mm. and certainly around drugs. Are we likely to see this expand again Alyssa do you, do you think to other courts around Victoria? I think it's a fantastic question and I don't know the answer to it. My hope would be that yes we are. I mean if we look at what's going on in the United States which is where the drug court first started, we know that there's over 200 drug courts in America and so obviously America has seen the advantages of um, that type of program. So my hope is that yes we would reduce what we call postcode injustice and that means so certain people only being able to access these programs because they live in a particular location and that we can actually roll it out across the state. So people in our regional areas 
areas, people in other suburban areas can actually access this program too because we can't just have it um, accessible just to certain people at certain locations. Yeah, and just in the city as well. Thank you so much for joining us today. I know you're busy. Um, and uh, thanks for bringing us up to date and hopefully it will be um, good news in future budgets uh, for the expansion of that court. Thanks very much, Alyssa. Thank uh, you. Alyssa Scott is with Victoria Legal Aid. She's a lawyer over there. And speaking this morning about the Victorian Drug Court expansion, uh, it has mainly just been in Dandenong, well, only in Dandenong now, heading to the Melbourne Magistrates Court. You're on Triple R. And how does a place get its name? Um, when we get a new park or a road or a bike path or a suburb, there's a process that needs to be followed for naming. And uh, if you want to rename something, you also go through a process to do that. Say if you want to reflect the Indigenous name for an area or give something a commemorative name, which is uh, happening as part of a uh, Anzac naming project. Uh, to find out how it all works, Rafe Benelli joins us from the Public Records Office of Victoria. And uh, thanks for coming into Triple R, Rafe. And how does the process work in a nutshell? If we want to say we've got something new, yeah, how do absolutely. we go about naming it? Um, firstly, thanks very much for inviting me to come on. It's uh, great to be here. Um, here in Victoria, we have uh, very detailed guidelines for naming places, both roads, features and localities, um, and that's managed uh, by the Office of Geographic Names, and in charge of the office is the Registrar of Geographic Names. And so um, under our Place Names Act, so we have a Geographic Place Names Act 1998, um, that allows for guidelines to be created, and um, there are a review at the moment of the guidelines and so that basically sets down the rules and the principles for naming um, all of the roads all of the places here within Victoria um, it's a devolved process and so certainly um, it's devolved to naming authorities and they are principally uh, councils um, and in some cases uh, state government departments so um, the office also maintains a register of geographic names and so in that register we have around about 200,000 uniquely named roads and about um, 45,000 uh, officially registered places. Now that's only in the register um, Outside of the register, there's hundreds of other geographic features that have never been officially registered. It might be one of your local parks, and you might be thinking, oh, yeah, that's been like that for 50 years, but uh, it's actually not in the uh, official register at the moment. Um, so there's some work going on at the moment around that. With uh, Vic Names, which is the Register of Geographic Names, uh, you can actually add history to all of these sites. And so um, I would certainly encourage your listeners, if you think, oh, look, there's a local road or there's a, a, a local park that uh, I know the history, it's maybe it's named after my ancestors, uh, we certainly encourage your listeners to uh, make submissions to the Register of Geographic Names. Yeah, it is interesting because I know there's actually a... a, a a place in Victoria called Tangambalanga and it has a Colston Park and I'm a I'm Kalia Colston and um, so it is named after my ancestors which I think is quite amusing and funny but you know they probably can I think they gave the land to the local community yeah. so that's why they got that name but I mean when we hear about naming it's often around roads isn't it like I'm thinking you know mm. ACDC Lane and other um, campaigns that have run to name laneways after musicians or notable people and um, but then we have some suburbs that will have first street second street third street yes. fourth street so there is quite a disparity in the creativity that yeah. some people put into naming absolutely there is and so uh, picking up on that musician theme uh, City of Melbourne, I think uh, last year named Amphlet Lane after Chrissy Amphlet. And so 
the reason it's Amphlet Lane and not Chrissy Amphlet Lane is because in the guidelines we say that you should only be using a compliant surname and so duplication checks would have been done um, and that's really public safety. Public safety is number one for the guidelines um, and also link to place is really important as well. So you saying, you know, my family gave land to the local council and then the council decided to name awesome what a link to place and so i'd certainly encourage you to uh, add the history to big names you can certainly go on i don't think that's gonna happen <laughs> <laughs> we can Someone do it might together do it. <laughs> one of one of the older mem- members of my family might go and do that who yeah. knows and so picking up on your um first street second street uh 2014 2013 we saw 1600 uh, new roads being created here in Victoria. That was 1,600 a year. And I think 2015 saw us in the Office of Geographic Names Gazette uh, around about 111 new road names. So the bulk of that 1,600 is coming from plans of subdivision. Plan of subdivision is a subdivision of land. And so obviously there's massive um, development going on in uh, metropolitan Melbourne, Casey, Melton, Whittlesea. And um, uh, what used to happen, I, I don't, we don't see it so much often anymore, but uh, developers would just come along, naming was a last fault, um, so they just add 1st Street, 2nd Street, 1st Street, in the expectation that someone would then go on off and name it, and typically that's the role of council. And so obviously now you've got uh, well-developed suburbs where they've got 1st, 2nd, 3rd, the likelihood of someone uh, going along and renaming that street you know there's an obviously involved process and so if the longer the street's been there the harder it is is going to be to name rename but um certainly we would encourage people to consider renaming those kind of streets with something that has a unique um, name and a link to place um i guess nowadays we see a lot of the developers it's a marketing thing the surveyors are also adding plan uh, names road names to plans of subdivision um and really we go out and we present to surveyors and developers and we explain, you know, it's really important to have a link to place. Uh, we present to council officers, subdivision officers, and explain that, um, you know, you're at the forefront of preserving the Victorian cultural identity, both both on a um, uh, Indigenous and a post-Aboriginal uh, um, time when uh, colonial powers came here. Um, so certainly there's a role there for the council and these uh, surveyors and developers to have in, in naming roads and really preserving that cultural identity. And so, as you say, you're encouraging people to have that connection to place. What qualifies as a connection to place? Hmm. Yeah, good, good question. Um, so in the guidelines, uh, I think it's Principle C... <laughs> link to, linking to place and so we say you know there's got to be a strong connection it might be someone you know family from the area um, has been doing community goodwill um, they've been there a long time um, it might be aboriginal in, in you know obviously there's history of 40,000 plus years so you'd say they've got a strong link to place so certainly we uh, advocate for indigenous names um, but also um, we prefer if you're commemorating someone that that person is deceased um, and that really just removes any of the skeletons out of the closet. There's obviously a number of high profile examples uh, here in Australia and overseas where features and roads have been named and unfortunately over time it's become apparent that it's not appropriate. We're talking about how we name places in Victoria with the public record records officers, uh, Raf Benelli, and um, he knows the kind of clauses and then the process for how it works. But also um, you can get involved with it. And so you're, you're 
encouraging people if they live on 4th Street to try and find a better name for that spot. But you're also um, going through an Anzac naming project at the moment and people mm. can put names forward to commemorate in in the name of um, of the sort of First World War, I suppose. So, I mean, what's that process Yeah, involved? absolutely. So uh, just uh, one correction... Office of Geographic Names and Public Record Office of Victoria, two different entities. So they're not advocating to you, they're advocating to the Office of Geographic Names to, yeah, to get absolutely. changes? Well, you, it's a, as I say, it's a devolved process, so really you should be going to your local council. And so um, I guess the reason, the invitation of this uh, uh, interview was because the Office of Geographic Names released... Uh, I think it was nearly 70, 80 boxes of files to the public record office. And so that saw 772 files going to the public record office. And actually myself, my colleague and one of our geographic place names advisory panel members um, went through every single page of that, took out any history that we found and put it into Vic names. So we've got a bit more of a fuller picture around some of the place naming there. So uh, we'll, perhaps we'll come back to that but focusing on your ANZAC uh, question ANZAC Commemorative Naming Project we run a pilot in 2010 uh, subsequently we got funding uh, from state government in 2013 and we've been promoting it to municipal councils that's really honouring uh, the service and sacrifice of uh, veterans um, uh, that fought from the First World War and going all the way forward to all wars and peacekeeping initiatives and also those that have displayed the ANZAC spirit um, the money that we've provided to councils uh, was really seed funding to go off and do research behind uh uh, ANZAC names um, and then so the community might go off and do research, they'd provide that a name and the research behind the name to council and then council would basically have a bank of compliant names that they could apply to plans of subdivisions new laneways, uh, new roads new parks, so it's a great initiative uh, I think we're into our second year now um, and we've got about 55 councils of the 79 on board so it's going great guns. Yeah and, and as you say there is a process that is gone through and so some of the the documents that are associated with the naming process have been released to the public records office so what what is the kind of general way that that names are agreed on yeah so um i guess the guidelines set out pretty detailed uh, how you're supposed to engage with the community and cons- and by consultation and so there's a number of principles in there which you know ensure that there's no duplication ensure there's link to place that it's you know um uh, the language is correct uh, and if there's an indigenous uh, aboriginal name that the aboriginal uh, groups have been consulted um so once they've you've got a name and you've confirmed that yeah it looks like it's compliant then you'd go out and engage with the community so the council will be sending letters maybe holding public forums i mean this might be a road renaming <coughs> excuse me might be a road renaming might be a uh, locality name <coughs> and, can it be um, controversial do people kind of say no we can't call it oh absolutely and so we would get a proposal come in from council and we would be looking does the name comply? Have there been objections? Have the objections been dealt with? Um, have the objectors been given the right to appeal to the registrar? And so, yeah, it's a fairly involved process. So typically it's a 30-day consultation period, but that can blow out anywhere from 30 days to three months to, to six months, depending on the argy-bargy between uh, members of the public um, and council. And then when the proposal comes to us, we've got obviously... Uh, tick all the boxes before we uh, get the name gazetted and registered then it goes into Vic names 
then it goes off into state databases and then it goes out to emergency services so again the important thing is with road naming and uh, your locality relates to an address you have problems with that then you're not going to be getting your triple o call call calls so it's going to be an issue yeah, I see. Well, um, if you're, it's not for the faint-hearted by the sounds of it, but if you want to get involved, there is a possibility to do that, and uh, particularly with these kind of um, promoted uh, naming projects and renaming projects that are underway in Victoria. And uh, you can find out more, actually, by heading to the Public Records Office um, website and, and Facebook page, and they keep you up to date, but there's obviously lots of other offices involved. And um, favourite place name, Rafe? Uh, favourite Quest- place name. Question well, without notice. Yeah. A recent place name that we had was a uh, famous Australian iconic brand, uh, Vegemite Way. So uh, uh, me being an Englishman, <laughs> I'd probably say Marmite Way, but I'm not a Marmite fan or a Vegemite fan. But uh, it's obviously re- recognising the... Your ambulance won't turn up if you say Marmite. <laughs> <but laughs> recognising the iconic uh, Australian brand. So they've actually named Vegemite Way, which goes into the factory where Vegemite has been made in Port Melbourne for 67 years. So There you go. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's uh, Rafe Finelli, Public Records Officer of Victoria. Hannah Asafiri, well, we know her for many, many things. Um, Moroccan Soup Bar, of course. And uh, earlier this year, we had her on to talk about her Speed Data Muslim events, which she's been running from her new cafe, Moroccan Delicacy, which is in East Brunswick. And now she started another event called Conversation Salon. And... You're basically unstoppable, Hannah. <laughs> uh, tell us about this new event. Um, I guess, thank you for having me. Uh, good to see you. Um, and I love coming here, I've got to say. I love the vibe and I love that, uh, you know, it, in my view, is part of the social conscience of what has become Melbourne. So thank you for being around, guys. Um, the conversation salon is simply a response to an appetite, although very different to Speed Data Muslim events. Um, somewhat a spin-off, uh, where clearly there was a com- there is a community appetite and need to converse beyond what appears to be uh, the superficiality of social media that. Uh, through social media discourse can be had but very superficially and yes of course there's benefits and people can be connected but a more in-depth dialogue and conversation um, seems to be avenues and venues uh, for these events seem to be lacking and uh, so for me in response to that and in response to a need to clearly uh, address the traction that's being gained through the Speed Data Muslim, the um, yeah, the community need basically. I thought um, marry that up with I've always had this longing for hoping to have lived a century ago or a, a thousand years ago um, um, or even further back historically under and during Rumi where the world was much more beautiful and we saw beauty in all that uh, we demonise and um, and or, you know, centuries later under Sartre and uh, Albert Camus where we discussed the absurdity of life and, and everything in between and I thought and constantly longed for a more meaningful engagement and only to find that others did as well. Um, 
So, you know, at the risk, again, of referring to uh, a room of one's own, um, <laughs> I thought, why don't we become the roomie, the room of one's own, the occasion where we can come together in a meaningful, engaged way, um, where it's not... I guess, uh, limited or confined to funding criteria or uh, political affiliations or just simply a place where we can come together and... um and reflect, I guess, my vision of a world that is more humane and more compassionate. And that is its only accountability, that we do become the better version of ourselves in this utopia space. And I think Melburnians or um, people that hang out in this city anyway uh, seem to like going and having a conversation and being part of intimate events like this one sounds like. But this idea of a, of a salon has a bit of history, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, absolutely. And look, uh, often, and like many things, sadly, women um, get skewed out or severed out of history when you look at the historical narrative of salons, but they were squarely hosted by women. And uh, 16th, 17th, 18th and 19th century, women ran these events and occasions where they invited poets and intellectuals and politicians and social ratbags and deviants and in order that their and our societies may progress and become more enlightened. And they were a space where not only engagement uh, was had but contestation of ideas respectfully um, and societies were enlightened as a consequence. And then um, I guess... For me, and I don't want to be uh, derogative, but I do refer to it as the idiot box. It was born and born without interrogation and where we have no incentive to question and interrogate and challenge the information that's been fed to us through um, the the television set uh, with this sensationalist soundbite... reference to difference in communities and that coupled with the bombardment of information around people have a disincentive to question and query whether as a result and consequence all Arabs are bad and um, so in in recognition I guess of how we gain uh, meaning and how information is had and the sources which provide uh, this very simplistic uh, narrative, I just thought if we come back and reclaim the conversation salon where these ideas can be elaborated on and contested and challenged. I guess the difference though for us uh, with the conversation salon is the narrative is squarely framed uh, and grounded in a women's perspective and a women's global experience by and through recognising that that place is often uh, the inequality Uh, globally, no matter our cultural background uh, and the space that women occupy. So our quest is to redress that somewhat and offer up speakers who inspire us, who are always women until such a time as society is made more equal um, and they inspire us in whatever field they occupy. The participants and those uh, invited and attending will almost always have to be both men and women. Um, as it is my view, that's how the world will change. But um, 
the women who we invite are often um, themed invitations so we'll look at an issue that society deems too difficult and in a corner and we'll bring it front and center and shine a light on it and whether we're talking about asylum seekers or indigenous women or um, sexuality within the context of faith we will have those conversations and discussions and you've had one already so there's what there's a, there's a, a, a um dinner and conversation conversation salon coming up on the 12th of this month and we can we can find out who's going to be speaking at that and performing at that event but you've had one already who was who was there and and how did it go Uh, Look, it was fantastic. That was the inaugural launch. And uh, I mean, again, I'm energised by the response and the appetite for the the more people, the more the reception um, is positive and the more people appreciate it, the more I find the energy, I don't know where from, um, (laughs) to to continue to host such events. Um, So the first one was a international speaker and uh, was... Farida Noor Arafin and she came out um, from Malaysia and she was talking about feminism within the context of Islam and how the Islamist narrative has impacted uh, the status of women. Uh, An amazing conversation um, and certainly a perspective, a useful perspective, not a previously heard in Australia and certainly in a, in a Western context. Um, however, and alongside that, I, I thought it important to offer um, a contestation to also some of her views, uh, which were relevant specifically to the Malaysian context, but also needed to be placed in a broader global context, um, especially in how they may relate to women living here um, in Melbourne. Hannah Asafir is with us, owner of the Moroccan Soup Bar and also the Moroccan Delicacy and runner of events. And um, we've heard, you know, um, you came in recently and, and spoke about your, your speed date, a Muslim event. And these have continued and uh, I suppose you say has spurred on this new conversation salon idea. But tell us how, how speed date a Muslim is going because I, um, I know that you're getting international coverage and people mm. saying we need this in our community, we need this in our country. And I suppose what you know give us an update on how how that's been received still now in in melbourne i know, look i know and i'm still astounded i've got to say but also heartened at um the reception and and yes it did begin and as a very innocent idea just to simply break down barriers and converse and and humanize the other uh and yet sbs uh covered one of the events and I don't understand much social media, but from what I understand, the terminology is it went viral. Um, so it had something like 300-odd thousand um, views and obviously comments and uh, positive and negative and all engagement I find important, I've got to say, because it's speaking to views and attitudes which exist. Um, and, and again, it reaffirms for me this idea that people do want to know and there is an appetite for these meaningful conversations about difference and about how we exist with dignity alongside one another. So we've had requests both 
uh, interstate, people wanting to emulate what we're doing and, um, you know, the requests require how do they do it and what are the features of running such events. Uh, so it's kind of uh, required that we rethink and crystallise what it is that we're about and how do you transfer that into an Especially environment. Especially when, when you have such a, a, a strong reputation in Melbourne for your, your values and, and the way that you run your restaurants. Mm. Um, so how, yeah, how can that be sort of franchised in a way? Well, yeah, and not only... I guess um, if we remove the monetary element of it entirely, but how can it uh, clearly people want to and and clearly um, we need to be able to find a way where simple harmonious messages that are genuinely about community cohesion which are innovative which are grounded in a women's expression a progressive women's expression how do we translate them interstate and certainly globally we've had requests from canada london um uh, 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 let me think, Malaysia, New York, um, as well as obviously Perth, Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne. And so for me, these weren't um, single kind of requests. They seem to consistently, and every time people hear about the Speed Data Muslim events, uh, there is a thirst for it. So... Um, in rethinking how do we how do we transfer them to all those settings uh, short of me or us kind of going and visiting and setting them up um, and and what are the essential features of them and how do we keep them progressive pluralistic non-judgmental and safe um, so we're in the process of I think outlining what a framework would look like and how to deliver them in settings which may be training. Um, and as an aside, we've had a request and we've already held a Q&A speed date at Victoria University, for example, and that had such a positive reception. Um, now, having said that, the pitch has to be necessarily different to one where you're running community events at a deli. Um, but the message is the same and the message is about all of us being mindful of and interrogating our assumptions when we come to meet another and engage and interact with another. So the, the features that we're putting together about um, how to offer this up in various other settings need to be underpinned by a progressive agenda who, um, at its very essence, will refute any subjugation or violation of women within the context of any faith and recognise that there is nothing sacred in Islam about violating women. Now, that is a premise, and whoever runs and moderates these events has to accept that as a premise. Otherwise, they the danger is they become a futile... Um, response to people's Islamophobia and to the downtrodden um, conditions of women and, and women then find themselves on the back foot having to answer to and respond to. So we're critiquing and I think the simple nature of these events is also an opportunity for Muslims um, and Muslim women in particular where we are critiquing conventions and we're... Uh, 
you know, looking at the cracks in existing conventions and kind of shining a light mm. on them and, and saying women need to occupy this speaking space for a change. And so um, we there is a conversation salon coming up and tell us who's going to be there. And I suppose... Hopefully we can still get tickets, can we? Yes. So uh, the conversation salons, unlike Speed Data Muslim, um, are ticketed events and they um, are offered over a banquet dinner, three or four course, in the hope that we stimulate all our senses, but they are not for the faint-hearted. They're not um, an occasion where we simply exchange business cards and uh, network. They are a contestation of ideas, a genuine, respectful um, contestation of ideas, as well as, I guess, squarely framed with uh, an eye on the most marginalised groups of people, those whose society has marginalised, um, and the relevance of our conversation to those women, and in particular Indigenous women, uh, Muslim women, where there's a lot of hostility levelled at them. So no matter the presenters, I guess, uh, the the conversation will will be interrogated in its relevance to diversity in a real and genuine way. So the, the coming up event, um, the way we price the ticketing, and I think, I guess I need to explain, is depending on who the speakers are, how much it's going to cost us to kind of bring them here, as well as the banquet um, and food that is had. And I am mindful of unwaged um I guess groups or people or individuals and um, by all means talk to me and we'll come to some arrangement. Uh, But the theatre of narratives is our next occasion and uh, we have amazing three women who are extraordinary in each area or each field that they work in. We've got a spoken word poet. Um, We have... uh, a a performer I think, artist performer whose expression is through song as opposed to words and uh, we also have a uh, woman who is looking at feminising Arabic calligraphy Um, so three very different uh, performers and approaches to engaging um, and offering up for consumption I've got to say um, ideas or experiences that we may not necessarily relate to any other way. I moderate them. <laughs> Very intriguing. And uh, Hannah Asafiri uh, is host of Conversation Salon and uh, you can head to their Facebook page of the Moroccan Delicacy uh, to find out more details and to find out how you can book into that event. Uh, kicks off and a delicious smorgasbord of ideas and food uh, and uh, looking forward to hearing how these events continue on and um, stay in touch with us, Hannah. Oh, and who knows you. what you're going to start next. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, get, we're going to hope start just tapping into reminding ourselves of our humanity and and look if each conversation can can do that then we are the better for it <laughs> thanks Thank so you much for coming. nice to see you again you've been listening to a podcast from australia's best known community radio station three triple r 102.7 in melbourne for more podcasts information about upcoming events and our live stream please visit our website at rrr.org.au